You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. I'd like to wish a happy holiday to our listeners. To close out 2020, I have been revisiting conversations with real fiction guests whose insights and wisdom are holding up pretty well as we navigate a COVID holiday season. It has been a privilege to be in conversation with authors, thinkers, journalists, filmmakers this year, whose courage and vulnerability transcended the book that they came in to discuss. So for today's episode, I've compiled some clips that speak to the present moment and offer a perspective as we head into the new year. The first clip I want to offer is from my conversation with Andrew Gifford. He was one of the last guests to record in the studio at Arlington Independent Media prior to COVID closings. I originally invited him to discuss his excellent independent literary press, Santa Fe Writers Project. But in preparing for that discussion, I learned that Gifford had also written a memoir about his family, the iconic Washington, D.C. dynasty, Gifford's Ice Cream. This wide-ranging discussion evolved into a synthesis of a very unique book publishing point of view and rejecting labels and the expectations of a family legacy to embrace the messiness of life. Here's a clip of my conversation with Andrew Gifford. Well, I'm curious, what kind of stories are you hoping to find in the next few years for a Santa Fe Writers Project? What I do you look care. for? I love everything. <laughs> you so, mentioned fiction and creative nonfiction, but is there is there a genre that you, yeah, you lean toward? Yeah, our catalog's all over the place. So I have memoir, I have a travelogue, I have fantasy, I have flash fiction. It's, uh, there's a mystery book that we have, a PI novel, you know, it's mm. a little bit of everything. We're essentially, uh, we're, we publish uh, from a contest that we, we run each year. And then we also have a slush pile. And I get something like 300 or 400 uh, submissions a week uh, in the slush you pile. You get 400 submissions uh-huh. per week. <laughs> but, you know, we'll find things in the slush pile that are just amazing. And, and it's, it doesn't matter what it is. If I want to keep reading it, I keep reading it. If I get to the end and I love it, I publish it. And it could be anything. So I have, uh, this also is very hard to describe to people at the convention table in 10 seconds. What I have found in my very small sampling of the independent publishers is that some of them have a very niche ask. You don't do that. No, and I think that's crazy. Now, that's very common. Most folks do want their little niche, you know. So it's easier to do that as a publisher. And this is something I've, I've run into problems with uh, with my sales reps from from our distributor and they'll say you know well we love santa fe writers project but we just don't know what you do we don't know how to sell you but i've always felt you know when i read books i read anything i could be reading some hardcore history novel one day and some flighty fantasy the next you know i've never in my own personal reading focused on one particular genre and i don't think people do that. Not really. You know, I I think a lot of people are all over the place. So why can't a publisher be all over the place? And as I think about where you came from, where you 
where you are now and where you're going, you still you still get a lot of questions about your family. Yes. And what we inherit from our families is complicated. We all have that to deal with. But how do you deal with labels that people have given to you? What is the label that you're comfortable with or do you reject them all? I don't know what label I've been given, really. I don't listen to people that closely. Over the years, you've been called the heir to the oh, Gifford Dynasty, the, the, the prince of ice cream that gets back to that performance art and that nostalgia about what your family brought into Washington. And you're doing something so radically different. You really never let those labels define you. You just found your own path. And that's what you're doing. You're putting stories out into the world. I have felt like I stand apart from the family for a very long time. That's why those labels don't really hit me at all. As a kid, I was barely involved in this, you know, and and I spent... So trying to avoid this, trying to avoid Giffords and trying to avoid anything to do with this. When you look at a story, does the ending need to have a tidy conclusion? No, because I couldn't find one. So <laughs> so I, I, I would never hold that over another author. Life can be messy. It depends on the book. Now, if it's a good fantasy, then that needs a tidy conclusion. But I, we have published a lot of other memoir, and you know, it's uh, I've always doubted the memoir that has a tidy conclusion. Toward the end of the memoir, you do go on a search for questions, and what we realize about life and what's remarkable about this memoir or any memoir that gives us something big to think about, there are there sometimes the answers do not reveal themselves. Is that something that you have come to peace with, come to terms with? No. <laughs> Very frustrating. It's, uh, I, I tried, so again, back to the standing apart idea. So once I started writing the memoir, initially it was very hard. The more I researched these people and the more I found out about them, because they were strangers to me. I didn't really know my parents. I didn't know my grandparents at all on, on my dad's side. So all of this, it was like I was writing about a group of insane strangers who had always been in the other room, but hadn't been around me that much. I wanted to find answers. Why? You know, was it the money? And again, they gave away their money, and they they all died poor, so it wasn't the money. They didn't care about that, you know? So was it trying to destroy the legacy, and why? Now, for Dad, perhaps that was it. I think Dad was brutally abused by his parents. Uh, and I think he wanted to, even though they were in the ground, I think he wanted to kill everything they rep- represented, everything they had built. So I think maybe that's one motive. But even then, no. I mean, these in, in the end, uh, the only answer is these are crazy people. And everyone who has the answers are in the ground. Okay. As we know, sometimes we don't get closure on the most important things in life. As unexpected deaths affected people worldwide, restrictions on gathering for funerals and memorial services altered how we mourn and grieve. So I want to turn next to acclaimed memoirist, Alexandra Fuller, whose Southern African family has thrilled millions of readers with their life as a white family in Zimbabwe during the War of Independence. We discussed grieving as an individual 
or communal act and how to navigate this when a family doesn't agree on the timeline. Following is a clip of my conversation with Alexandra Fuller, whose most recent book, Travel Light, Move Fast, was published last year. I mean, at that point, you're a grievance in search of a story. And I think that's what ungrieved grief is. And what I also realized was that I was prepared, maybe I'm very like my father this way, there's a job of labor to be done. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and do it. There is something very um, anti-Southern African about waiting. I mean, I waited what I considered a reasonable length of time to scatter my father's ashes, which was he died on September 4th and we scattered his ashes January 4th. Now, by Southern African standards, that's about four months and a day too late. By Southern African standards, the body needs to be buried, and then one gets on with the very physical job of grieving. And what I could see with my mother and sister was that both the ceremony of disposing of the ashes and of the mortal remains was never going to happen, and neither was the grieving. And that we would always be stuck, therefore, in the state of denial and anger and, you know, those beginning stages of grief, which I think can, when remains stuck, turn very toxic. I thought a lot about the stages of grief and how individual this can be. Um, After reading Travel Light, Move Fast, and I'll remind everyone we're listening to, we're we're talking with Alexandra Fuller, the author of Travel Light, Move Fast. Um, I'm always interested in the structure of a book. And in this case, the memoir has an epilogue. And the final pages reveal something unexpected. I had to revisit everything that I read after I, I finished the final pages, there are layers upon layers of unimaginable grief. There's a timeline of events, but can you share with us a little bit about that? So I was about a third of the way through writing the book. Um, you know, writing is all I do, and I've been really lucky that all I've had to do is write books. I don't, you know, have another sort of job. That's it, which is, I think, incredibly fortunate in this day and age. Um, but it does mean that a book needs to be written. You, I can't stall out and say, well, I'm going to take a few years off right. from this thing. I mean, I suppose I could, but I don't. I think I'm unemployable at this point. A third of the way through this book, my son, my 21-year-old son, uh, 400 days ago today, actually, mm. uh, died unexpectedly in his sleep of a seizure. Um, and it, of course, put me into an even deeper cycle of grief than the one that I was already in um, and gave me an understanding of these cycles of grief. And this is something I hear in the States a lot that, oh, it's so individual. But we think everything's so individual because we've lost touch with community. Now in Southern Africa, we would say, this is so community. (laughs) This is so collective. You can't do this alone. And my closest friend, from Zambia reminded me of the ceremony of Mzimu, which is that when someone dies, especially a child, and I've remembered this my whole life, you'll be going about your day and suddenly you'll hear the pierce of a woman ululating, just this cry. And then the voices of crying and you know, oh, there's been a devastation and we are all devastated together and it is impossible not to feel what is going on when you hear that ululation. Now here death happens very uh, sort of 
privately and weirdly. And uh, there's this way in which, you know, my son's body's sort of taken off under wraps of blankets. And But I went with, I lay with him for as long as the coroner would allow me for those many hours. Um, of course I was with him as he got cremated. I mean, I was with him when he came into the world. Why wouldn't I be with him when he went out of it? And then after that, as, thank God, God for my Southern African upbringing, my indigenous and and all the contact I've had with indigenous people, I understood that my work was allowed to allow him to become an ancestor, which meant that I had to move through my. I mean, you, one has to move through one's grief, and you can't do that alone. And this idea that it's so individual—it's a lie. That's why there's stages of grief that are very, you know, that are very recognizable. It doesn't mean that you go through the stages of grief neatly. Um, and that's, I think, where people go, it's so individual because it doesn't follow some sort of, you know, formula. But the truth is, as an indigenous community, they give you a formula because you are so at a loss. To lose your father is to lose your history. To lose your son is to lose your future. And in indigenous communities, people know this. That is perhaps one of the greatest lessons in this book. We don't have a great vocabulary for grief and loss. There's an awkwardness that occurs when someone, even a close friend, loses somebody. We just don't really have a process, a formula, as you say. No, and I think in that, I mean, certainly in the Jewish community, I have, uh, there seems to be a lot more structure around it. But I'm, you know, in the Episcopalian community, you just dropped on your head. There aren't even prayers for you as you go through, you mm. know, your year of grief or this is what you can expect. Pe people just sort of expect, oh, time will heal everything. But that isn't true because I've witnessed what's happened to ungrieved grief. And I think that if you look around, we're a country in ungrieved grief, that I think it is your civic, your, it's your duty as a civilian of the world to do your grief properly so that you aren't stuck in denial. And I think what we see in this country, stuck in anger. Philosophy professor Andreas Elpidoru wrote a book titled Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life. This well-timed book challenges us to use our emotions to move beyond our bored pandemic brain and motivate us to find purpose and joy. I have found myself turning to this brilliant philosophical and scientific model for focus and resilience. Here is a clip from our conversation earlier this year. We don't just experience one emotion at a time. Our lives are filled with emotions, and sometimes there's just so many, we don't even know what we're experiencing. So I wanted to, I don't know, think about collecting some of them in a package and trying to understand what they do. And all of this work is with the aim of trying to figure out how we can live a better life. How can our emotions help us achieve richer and fuller lives. And what I found is in all those three cases, in all three topics of the book, boredom, frustration, anticipation, all three of them are indications that somehow and for some reason, we found ourselves in a present situation which is not satisfactory to us. But at the same time, they are powerful motivators and they move us and they try to get us to a better future, to a life that is closer to our, um, that has more of our goals met. Yes, I think that comes through very well. These, um, as you argue, are motivating emotions. What is that summoning from us as individuals? We need to do a little bit of work. We need to perhaps 
um, acknowledge that we're feeling this way and then do something to to kind of turn the tide to make sure that we're doing something positive. So I guess what are some things that, that you have observed from people in your uh, analysis or even as you personally? Yeah, I- the first thing is, I think we need to cultivate our emotional literacy. And what I mean by that is that we need some time to ourselves to understand our emotions. And that's not always easy, uh, especially when the emotions are hard, strong and powerful. But it is important to be able to distinguish, let's say, between apathy or boredom, frustration or anger. Because once we know what emotions we're experiencing, then that can help us make sense of our situation. And so that is a beginning point um, that's very important and a lesson that we can apply. At the same time, and I think, you know, we are now in a moment of crisis with COVID and the pandemic and all the measures that are in place. Uh, But we should try to, in, in a way, think about what matters to us the most. And I think anticipation does that very well. If we start thinking about, you know, when the pandemic hit in April um, and we were, well, when, when the measures started in April, I would rather say, we were all anticipating, we were all expecting things to do. And so trying to think, what are the things that you're missing the most? What are the things that you're anticipating the most? That can put our life in some kind of order. And it can show us, well, this is what matters to you as a person. And so maybe put your resources there. Novelist Brian Platzer, author of The Body Politic, is the embodiment of harnessing the power of mind and body to enjoy life while enduring chronic illness. Brian wrote a New York Times article that sparked a wide discussion about validating pain that is not easily diagnosed. His life and fiction explore a kind of healing cocktail of traditional and holistic medicine to live one's best life. I've turned to this message many times this year. It's fascinating. So I wrote my first article on chronic dizziness and illness in general for the New York Times when I was really in the the middle of it. Um, It was a personal essay about my own experience. And I received thousands and thousands of responses, half of which were from women uh, almost entirely saying, I'm so happy someone has written about this in the New York Times to show my blank that I'm not making it up. And then they would fill in the blank with either their uh, spouse, their boyfriend, their boss, or their doctor. You know, So there was that, that sense of they needed validation because so many of them went into a medical or a relationship situation and they were disbelieved. So that was that was part of the response. The other half was were the people who contacted me to say, have you tried? You know, and then fill in the blank. And it was everything from have you seen this doctor on 67th Street to mm. peppermint oil cured me, or you should drink, you know, 25 glasses of water or try, you know, talking to this uh, chiropractor who has this method that only, and I tried it all. I mean, I'm, I'm by disposition a little bit more cynical probably coming into this than I, I was in the middle of it where I was just so desperate for, for any cure. And, and these practitioners fascinate me because I, I think that there is such a fine line between a true believing healer who believes that he or she has tapped into something that is a combination of psychological and, and physical and can find the answer for these patients who have suffer, suffered for so long, and uh, straight charlatans who know that mm. when people are so desperate for an answer, 
they are willing, I was willing to go back week after week after week and take supplements and be told, you know, I can feel that your energy is, is less crossed over now than it was the week before. And, and people are so desperate for it. And I, I, I still don't know. I mean, I, I think that most of them probably are doing this work with good faith, but it's, it's difficult for me on the other side who saw, you know, dozens of, of practitioners of both uh, Western and, and holistic medicine, um, so many of whom came to me with the same certainty. You know, that, that was part of the fascinating aspect all, also. Like a, a neurosurgeon saw me and said, oh, I see what you, your problem is. I can fix it. You know, this will be gone in six months. Right. And then six months later, an acupuncturist said, oh, I see people all the time like you. No worries. You finally like found the right person. I can fix it. And then six months later, that didn't work either. And what, what did for me was a combination of straight psychopharmaceuticals, you know, I'm on heavy doses of medications off label that are, are used on me for um, reasons that are uh, typically not what they're prescribed for. And they saw a wonderful uh, psychologist who deals only with chronically ill patients who helped me um, it, it understand the degree to which I was um, depressed and, th and that depression was uh, creating an additional layer of pain that that was unnecessary. Where I, I feel like I was suffering so much, and there was almost a need in me to 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 make a performance of of my pain and anger and frustration to everybody all the time because I, I think I think I felt so lonely with it. And and people have those um, reactions to chronic illness, but also when they're in mourning for loved ones, you know, after divorce, when they experience a loss of job. I, I think a lot of us are. Our, our instinct is to go into a, a kind of hibernation where, you know, like right now I'm in pain, I'm going to shut down and I'll begin to live life again when, when this is over. And I see people doing the same right now with the, the coronavirus where they're like, I just have to, to shut myself in, in the house and close my eyes and cover my ears and scream until we, we get the green light again. And, and by doing that, I was, and I think a lot of people are, adding an additional layer of anxiety and, and pain it, to their life. So mm. for me, it was the combination of finding the right doctor who sent me to the other right doctor who was able to medicate me with a, a little bit of an opening up and, and allowing myself to, to laugh at a joke I found funny or to, to take joy in the moments I was able to enjoy my kids as opposed to see those moments as just a reminder of all the other moments I couldn't enjoy. Finally, in today's Real Fiction clip episode, a few words from the great Pico Iyer. We recorded this conversation to discuss his new book, Autumn Light. I was in my basement pop-up studio, and Pico was at his desk in Japan. It was on the day of the April supermoon. It was also the same day the Japanese prime minister ordered a COVID lockdown across Japan. Iyer's books, travel essays, and TED Talks invite us to accept life's impermanence, to celebrate it, and to apply rituals and routine to steady our daily lives. One of the things that Autumn Light is also about, the steadying powers of routine and ritual, and you were talking about, well, people flocking and, and working in kind of community with nature, and now we're being told to stay home. And we're in a different kind of really emotional universe. And 
I wonder, what are some basic things that you have learned in balancing your very hectic world travel schedule and then the quiet time that you spend in Japan? How, how might we all kind of navigate this world moment of insecurity? I would say the only important part of my life is the quiet time. The hectic stuff is, is, is just like the sort of sparkle on top of the waves. But the ocean in which I live is the time alone. And I think really all of us know it's only our inner resources that matter. Um, for example, my 88-year-old mother who's in California and whom I can't visit currently is in hospital at the moment. And I realize that all the trips I've taken, all the books I've written, all the money I have in the bag, none of that's going to help her or help me right now. The only thing that can sustain her and support me is what I've gathered within in terms of clarity and strength and resilience and, and joy and what I can bring to her. And I think that one of the reasons I moved from the U.S. to Japan was the sense to go back to the autumn leaves that in Japan, you often hear that life is about a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. And every, world, every life is sorrowful insofar as every life dies. We all know sickness. Most of us know old age. We meet somebody and then we have to separate from somebody. But that's not a reason for grief so much as for joy. And that's what the cherry blossoms flowering around me right now are all about. People cherish them in Japan precisely because they don't last. And they're a wake-up call about both mortality and the fact that the fact of mortality means we can't take anything for granted and we have to find our joy, our beauty, our wonder right now. Look around you. This is the moment to celebrate. This is the moment you can be sure of. And I think, again, a writer is paid, or at least these days, <laughs> encouraged to spend much of her time alone. And so goes familiar with the fact that what happens to us is much less important than what we make of what happens to us. Um, many years ago, uh, I was in my family home in California. The whole house burnt down. I lost everything I own in the world including really the next three books I was going to write. And 450 other houses were also devastated in that fire. And I noticed maybe a year later that after that period of adjustment, quite a few of my neighbors were traumatized for life. But quite a few of my other neighbors suddenly thought, well, in some ways, this can be a liberation. I don't need to live with so much clutter in my life. Maybe I can live in the place that speaks to me in, instead of just the place where I happen to be. Uh, for myself as a writer, having only written nonfiction at that point and having been stripped of all my notes, but still being possessed by certain subjects and the wish to engage with them, I tried fiction, which perhaps I always would have been too shy or scared to try otherwise. In other words, this seeming disaster actually had all kinds of opportunities within it. And it was up to each individual how much she would see it as debilitating and how much she might see that there was a possibility hidden within it. And of course, in this current moment, all of us are thinking most about those who are sick, those who are homeless, those who don't have resources. But for the few of us who are fortunate enough, maybe um, to be healthy at the end of this and to have a job to go back to and to have a roof over our heads, I think it's an opportunity um, because I feel that I and many of my friends have been racing around so much in recent years that we have much more coming in on us than we have time and space. In other words, that something has been pushed out of control and that all-important balance between experience and reflection 
has somehow um, been thrown out in recent years. So we've got lots and lots of data, but we never know how to put it into perspective. And suddenly now, life has given us, I think, a kind of wake-up call and reminded us this is the chance to cultivate your inner resources. This is the chance to find what really sustains you. This has been a special edition of Real Fiction. Links to the full episodes can be found on realfictionradio.com. Real Fiction airs each week on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. I wish everyone a happy holiday and new year. Thanks for listening.